Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey everyone, Michael Adams here. You're about to listen to our interview with Ben Darwin. Andy and I had a fantastic time talking to Ben. I wanted to let you know at the start that uh, we had a couple of audio issues on Andy's side of the recording, which meant that we've had to use our backup for part of the interview. So at a couple of points in in our chat, you'll hear it go a little funny on Andy's side. Uh, so don't be alarmed. Uh, it, it's not too much of an issue, but you will notice a difference at a couple of points in the interview. Uh, and with that, on with the show. Back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy? I'm well, mate. How are you? I'm very excited. We've got a very special guest on the line. Someone we've we've been wanting to make this happen for a long time. Uh, so we're so happy to, that it could finally work out. But we've got uh, former Wallaby and good friend of the RLD Ben Darwin on the show. How are you, Ben? I'm very well, thank you. I'm in lockdown here in Melbourne, so. Life can't get much better at the moment with four kids under the age of nine. Oh, jeez. <laughs> that sounds horrible. Yeah, yeah. We're just back into lockdown, so literally there's a curfew at the moment. So It's almost a rugby scrum, mate, but not a four under nine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I've got, I got three boys and a little girl, so um, it'd be good when we come out of this because it's not great at the moment. Yeah, our heart goes out to all our listeners in Victoria. Hopefully this episode can be a distraction, but we wanted to get you on, Ben, to discuss rugby union uh, and particularly its relationship to super league and the aftermath of the two games after what happened in 1995 uh, before we get into all that i thought we should start with a, a bit of your background uh, and for anyone who's who's not aware of your glittering career we can we can get into all that so so where does it all start with you so um, I, I was actually born in Leeds, um, so my dad's from Northern England, and interestingly, his, his connection was, I think when he was a young guy, he used to actually train with Warrington, um, not as a player, but he was a squash player, so he used to do fitness for them, so I kind of had an early connection to to, to rugby league. In fact, my favourite player in the world is Kevin Sinfield, for those who yeah, are right. affinity to Leeds. So no, I, I was born in the UK, came to Australia when I was like 10 weeks of age, so I don't really know any of it, and then... Um, and then grew up in a, in a Sydney, um, went to a, went to a school in Sydney, uh, Barker College and played rugby just through my brother, basically, uh, who also played and then, um, eventually became a professional player at the Brumbies and then on to sort of, on to, to further honours, so to speak, via Newcastle. So I went to Newcastle University for a couple of years and have had been in and out of Newcastle for quite a long time. Um, met quite a few blokes up there through, uh, through Newcastle, through Fanny's nightclub and, and the castle and those places, world's <laughs> biggest disco, and had a great time from about 1996 to 1997 in Newcastle. And, um, you know, wish I was there all the time if I could be, but my wife won't let us. And then started this business uh, 2013 after I had, a, I had a spinal injury playing for Australia in the 03 World Cup and then, um, and then had to basically retire from that point. So went and did a bit of coaching. And then um, after some coaching for about six or seven years, started doing data analytics 
uh, which I've been doing now for about 10 years. Now, it, it would be remiss for me to not double back to Fanny's nightclub. <laughs> I was growing up in Sydney. I don't think I'd ever, ever been to Newcastle at that point. But Fanny's nightclub was, was the stuff of, of myth, even down here in Sydney. Uh, did you have any experience as well there, Andy? Did I have? I, yeah, I, mean, I think we, we crossed paths in 97 because I turned 18 in 97, Ben. So I would have sold you at the world's biggest disco with the $2 entry fee. <laughs> Um, and, and, and later at Fanny's, but Fanny's, my recollection of that is people staggering out like zombies at like five in the morning. Cause it was sort of like pre drugs. It was just, just booze heads and blokes just peeing on the sidewalk in front of their girlfriends. That's, 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 that's how I remember it. So I, I, I was, um, very lucky. So my, my housemate actually worked there as a barman. Um, and so I would order a drink. And sort of give him give him three dollars and get a double and five dollars back. He didn't last very long there, um, but um, and he actually lived with um, a few guys from a from a, a, a band called Little Hornet. Uh, Ty Pennington and Dean Curl. I used to live, I used to live next door to, to Dean. Yeah, so I my Bucks party was in Newcastle. I was up on stage with Ty uh, in a I believe a woman's dress. So that's my that's my last uh, memory of Newcastle was F my Bucks party two thousand and one. So. I was a big Little Hornet fan. Though. Oh, very good. They're, yeah, they're, um, it, it's and that's that's Newcastle, isn't it? Like it's the smallest town humanly possible. Everyone knows everybody, and that's what makes it so good. <laughs> and, and your time in your time in Newcastle also, there, there's a, a funny Super League connection there, isn't it? Which which uh, you contacted us about some time ago. Can you uh, go into that? Yeah. So so um, I had this very strange scenario. So, so the reason I was up in Newcastle was to go to uni and also Newcastle had a team in the Sydney rugby competition called the New Newcastle Wildfires. Um, uh, so they were in that comp for about five years. So I was playing in the under twenties with that team. And, um, so during this kind of whole, uh, war that was breaking out, the Hunter Mariners had also started up. And I, I, from memory, they were trying to use West's training facility. Um, and that backfired. And I think it was, it was like one of the biggest protests in the history of Newcastle was all the West members saying, you can't train in our facilities, you don't want any association. So the Hunter Mariners then ended up at the university. And I think part of their agreement with the university was that they would give out scholarships. And so there was three scholarships handed out, two for rugby union, because that was a more popular sport of the uni at the time, and one for rugby league. And so it was all going to be dependent upon some of the rulings uh, through the sort of summer and and uh, if the Mariners went ahead, the scholarship was going to go ahead. So I was kind of like waiting with bated breath, you know, when those decisions were handed down and the scholarship didn't start till six months late. And and then I basically got asked to come in one day and um, and uh, the, the press officer at the time for the Knights, for the Mariners was Michael Hagen, who I now know quite well through through the Knights. And, and uh, so he's obviously the ex-Knights player, foundation player. And, um, and so we basically were given this check for $10,000. Um, and that went straight to Fanny's, I think, from memory. <laughs> and, uh, it sort of paid for me. And, and then I, I ended up leaving. I wasn't able to attend Newcastle Uni because I kept going down to Sydney so much for rep games and had the scholarship for about a year. But it was so odd basically receiving this scholarship at the time for no apparent reason whatsoever. And, um, yeah, there was, there was three of us. And I think it ended once the Mariners ended after they had their, their season, so it was it was very very strange and and didn't make sense at all. But I wasn't going to say no. <laughs> it really was the lolly shop all around, wasn't it? Yeah, if I was receiving money at, as a nineteen year old out of if I made money out of Super League, a lot of people must have made a lot of money over time. Um, and it was just it's 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 just remarkable. Um, 
And then against that backdrop, also the rugby union version of that was all, all sort of all going on. Um, but but the fact that I did well out of the Hunter Mariners was was pretty odd. And I do distinctly remember because I used to train at How's That. I don't know if you guys remember How's That at Newcastle, which is the gym up there. But we had the Mariners. We had the Mariners coming in and out of out of there all the time. And um and so they sort of had this really weird year where I think a lot of them actually trained together through '96, but never played. So it was a it was a very wow. sorry, it was a team it was a team that actually just sort of seemed in um, uh, in limbo for a long time. And were you following them in '97? Did you take an interest because of the scholarship? Um, well, probably mildly. I mean, at the time, my my distinct memory of '96 '97 was Joey Johns's haircut he got when he was at Manly. I think <laughs> when he got pink hair. That's my distinct memory of the Knights. Um, uh, and the Knights, the Knights truly dominated the city at that stage. I've I've never seen anything. Like, I mean, the Newcastle Falcons were still there um, at that at that time, but um, it wasn't quite the same. It wasn't quite the same, and 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 the and the fact too that, that the Mariners were so far out of town, they didn't have a proper stadium to stay at. They were away for elongated periods of time. I was struggling to understand the World Club Championship and how that worked. <laughs> um, and so so it just the, the Knights just had much more visibility. And then, obviously, when they won at the end of '97, and the and the res- I, I actually was in Newcastle at the time. I just left, but so many people just never stopped talking about those couple of days, um, and that was that was just in- incredible for the city. And I think that it sort of was the nail in the Hunter Mariner's coffin. I never heard such a disgraceful um, rendition about Copper Stadium. It like, isn't a real home ground. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and they actually end up playing rugby union finals out there, but it just—I think the um, the football club was out there too for a while. The the, the whichever incarnation Newcastle had in the NSL at that stage, because quite a number of them have come and gone, and obviously the A League. But it's just yeah, that was actually right near the the university top of stadium, or is it Jesmond, wasn't it? Yeah. Or Birmingham, Birmingham Gardens, yeah. but it just had just had no connection whatsoever to Newcastle in a way. So yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> and your your rise as as a Wallaby, you you were in the last like great era of of the Wallabies. You just missed the '99 World Cup victory, but you were in the the last Bledisloe Cup winning teams. Yeah, very very lucky. Lucky. I, I got down to uh, with the '99 World Cup. It was there was an injury, and so there was two guys to go over. One was me, and I had a broken just got a broken arm, and another guy Rod Moore, and he went. And so um, I was then in the Wallabies about. Uh, 12 to 14 months later so I started that 2000 and my first series was against my first test for Australia was against the British and Irish Lions um, which was wow. just unbelievable in Brisbane and uh, and then I had the next three years leading into the World Cup which was 03 um, so it was a short period of time but but very lucky too to be part of the Brumbies which we had some success through that period one Super Rugby 01 made the final 02 the semi-final 03 they then won again in 04 um, so yeah, I was very, very fortunate to be part of a really strong group and, and, uh, we'll talk about it later, but that also sort of formed a lot of the research I've been doing now on teams as to why that success took place and is no longer with us. Uh, that's unbelievable. The fact that you're a tight head prop as well for our rugby league listeners. I mean, the prop in rugby union is no joke. It's, it's not like putting a center in the scrum in, um, league. <laughs> you've got to be technical. You've got to have the thickest neck muscles of all time, right? Like, yeah. So, so it tends, it's very close actually to wrestling. And the idea of scrummaging is you've got to control the neck of the other guy, but you've also got about six to 800 kilos going through your spine at the same time. So geez. it's about taking the pressure of your team 
and putting it into the opposition. But when you're a tight head prop, you have to deal with two people attacking you at once. So you've got the hooker and you've got the loose head and you've got to be able to control both of them as best you can. And so it tends to be props te- Props tend to hit their peak at about 31, 32 because you sort of have that old man strength. So when you're about 22, 23, as I was, it's a baptism of fire. And basically the only way to become a good prop is to literally get your head shoved through your bum and and you get smashed and then you learn and then you learn and then you learn. And then after about 300 of those, you get good enough to hold your own and then you get to teach the younger guys. So it's it's a very, very difficult way to learn a job. Um, but but over time, you eventually uh, get good enough and, and then you, you know, I was very lucky enough to play for Australia, but we didn't have a lot of guys in that position at the time. So I was kind of given a bit of a green run through into the Wallabies. Did, did you have a VIP car park at the chiropractor? I mean, that sounds terrific. <laughs> Uh, I did after my injury. There was a, they actually changed the rules around the injuries that that, that were that I had. So mine was a. It's interesting because again, there's this kind of little you know rugby league connection. So Doctor Raftery, who was our doctor with the Wallabies, was also the, the the doctor for St George. He was on the field when Nathan Brown did his neck, right. and it was very similar. And and mine was in a scrum, and I basically lost all feeling below my chin. I sort of fell to the ground, flopped down, and and we were looking at my arms and legs, thinking, well. They can't be mine because I can't feel them. And then the doctor came out. He said, what's wrong? And I said, I can't, you know, um, can't feel my arms and legs. And, and interestingly, the immediate thought that popped into my head was, I really like working on computers. I think I'll become like a computer technician. I was trying to sort of solve the problem. So I'm literally in the middle of the all stadium right. and all these people are arguing of where they get the helicopter and stuff like that. And I'm thinking, man, I really, I really like computers now. So if I'm a quadriplegic, that's what I'm going to do. And then I wow. met the, because uh, you're trying to solve the problem when you're playing. And then I met the uh, doctor and he said, Generally, these type of injuries, you're either killed, become a quad, or you get to walk away. You're going to walk away. So I was very, very, very fortunate. And you feel a lot of guilt because other guys have, you know, lesser injuries and and worse outcomes. Um, so I just was very, very lucky. That, that partially answers my next question, which is how do you deal with that when you're just coming into your own? Your, your, your Wallabies career is just starting. You're in this, you know, great Brumbies team. To have that all snatched away instantly... Like, how do you deal with that hole in your life? I mean, retirement is 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 difficult, and I there's no question I had I had difficulties with it. And the best way I can describe it is, when you retire, you sort of you you have this momentum, and everyone's super nice to you. Like, you're never better than the day you retire. The amount of accolades that people pay to you and said, you know, you were going to be amazing, and I'm like, you know, you can't disagree with them because <laughs> they've got no position to do so. So, so one of the positive things about being injured is. You're never told you're not wanted. I always feel for the guys who end their careers and they're told by their club, you know, it's time to go play in France or, you know, time to go play in Japan and, and it's time to head overseas. Mm-hmm. Or So that's that's the real positive of it. And then again, um, there's no limit to how good you could have been. So that I'll never be able to you know, shut up about that. So I've got – I've sort of – I don't have to have any excuses for not being successful. Um, but – what, what tends to happen, I, I describe it as like you're skiing. When you ski, you might lose the ski and you can stay upright for a while, but then eventually you've got to collapse and fall over. So I didn't really have any difficulties with depression or anxiety or, you know, with retiring until about a year later. So when it when it happens, there's all this kind of euphoria. I'm alive. I get to walk. You know, I'm going to have kids. But then eventually you're sitting in a room going, now what am I going to do with myself? And And there's also a lot of guilt for me associated with the fact that I – wasn't killed, I wasn't a quadriplegic and other guys were. I mean, I met a guy in North Shore Hospital um, and he he would, he'd jumped into a pool, had a couple of beers, dove into the wrong end and he was now quadriplegic and trying to learn to use his arms again. 
So, and I met some of those guys, and it was very specifically, okay, well, one, I'm not going to play because my mum will kill me if I try to play again. Um, but but I, I was still reasonably fit. That's all gone now, but I was still fit, and so it's hard. You want to use your body, and you can't. And the other difficulty was I was on, um, I was taking enough endone to kill a horse for about the next three months, and that was hard to get off it. I was in a neck brace, mm-hmm. and um, and and so that was that was another challenge. But eventually, uh, eventually, you, you 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 get. It's actually really nice when the last guy you play with retired, because then it's like, well, I I wouldn't be playing anymore anyway now. And I've got to say, my my body's in a much better state than it would have been if I kept playing. Mm. Well, well, Ben, um, like we're always trashing rugby union for the old boys network and everything <laughs> like that. But, uh, the fact that you're educated and you know articulate guy. You had options post rugby, whereas some of these like league guys, you know, setting folks pants on fire and that type of thing. If it happened to them, they haven't really got too many options. Were you pleased that you pursued your education when that happened? I think that the, I mean, I I, I only finished year twelve. I did a year of primary school teaching um, at Newcastle, but I didn't I didn't get to finish it. I have very bad ADHD, which is a positive and a negative, and and it's actually during this period that a lot of guys stopped you know, doing university as rugby players. It's quite rare now for guys to, to finish their degrees. Most of them sort of retire and then just become professional footballers. So, but what was a huge advantage was the network, was that there's so many guys like, you know, Phil Kearns who sort of rang me with the next day and you get lots of offers and opportunities, but the, the hard part is to sort of very quickly figure out what you can do. And so it took, it took time for me to figure that out and to kind of find this niche that I found, my, found for myself now. Um, but I did things like media. I did sort of, I did the Rugby World Cup in 07 with Channel 10. I did the coaching, a lot of the sort of traditional, um, components. But now, now what I'm doing feels the most satisfying and builds upon my experience. And one of the things actually that rugby guys find when they retire is most of their mates are now like second, you know, second down at Macquarie Bank by the time that they finish. And so they end up feeling like they're 10 years behind everybody. And so some of them don't have an education. So they kind of feel like they finish. They finish their careers, they're financially well off, but some of the guys they went to school with are now worth 50 million and, you know, running the banks. And so they kind of feel like they're behind. Like it's, it's a stupid comment because, you know, obviously they're going to do very well. Um, but, you know, as we saw with guys like Dan Vickham and a lot of guys really struggle with it. And actually one of the best things that has come about it is now because of the growth of the French, you know, the English, the Japanese, a lot of guys' retirement's quite soft. So they stop super rugby, yeah. then they go to Japan or they go to Europe. Some guys never come back. Some guys never come back from Europe and stay over there, marry a French girl, and you know, happy days. So well, it's, I, wanted, I wanted to ask you about your, your coaching in Japan because I'm a, I'm a big uh, a fan of Japan. I've been there and uh, I learned Japanese in high school. Did you did you have trouble with the language there? Did you pick it up? So I I did Japanese at high school, but I literally came last in my year. One one advantage was my 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 wife, who I met just before I went to Japan, had lived over there for a long time. Um, we had we had our first translator. We figured out after about six months, none of the Japanese boys could understand him. So that was <laughs> that was a difficulty. We then switched over to uh, <laughs> to another guy. Um, but but no, I, I I've had the, I've been over to Japan three or four times now. It's just as you know, it's an incredible place. And and interestingly, one of the things that was really odd about our time was was there's a rule in Japan which is you can have a certain amount of foreigners and one. Asian, that's the way they describe it. I'm not trying to be racist, just the way they describe it. So you can have an Asian-born player, right? Normally they're Korean. Ours was Craig Wing, right? So, so we, 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 Craig qualified through his Filipino passport, and he'd literally never heard of rugby in Japan at all. 
And, you know, within a, within a couple of weeks of a phone call, ended up coming across to Japan, ended up playing for Japan in the Rugby World Cup. That's amazing. Yeah, and, and like, we went to, um, there's a guy you've never heard of, but a, we went to, the, like, the weddings of a guy called J.P. Nell and Fred Dupree in, in um, uh, South Africa. We All these sort of South African rugby royalty we went over to and, and went to their wedding, and, and Craig's like, wow, I never sort of knew any of this world existed. And, um, you know, he, he's, he's, got, he's back and forth to Japan a couple of times a year. He had a great time of it, but... It's 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 a very odd thing, Japanese rugby. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of fascinating. But like, when I went there, they could understand me, but I couldn't hear them like in one sentence. They're that quick. I was just like, what? <laughs> but uh, I thought I was going to be um, very well prepared, but it wasn't. But the fact that you play for a company over there cracks me up. Like like NEC versus UATT, were you? Uh, NTT. So we were the NTT Shining Arcs. Um, and then, <laughs> and if you ever go through some of the names, like one of them is the Toshiba. Brave Lupus, the Yokogawa Atlas Stars, uh, the Kurita the Water Gush, uh, the Mitsubishi Dino Boars. Um, so the way this kind of started out was, you know, rugby theoretically went professional in 96, but the two places who, who completely ignored it were the Italians and, um, and the Japanese. So what they did is they would say, you know, our company, which was Panasonic or Sanyo, is going to play against Toshiba, um, but we can't go and sign All Blacks to come and play for us. So what's going to happen instead is we just happen to hire a young man to come and work on our on our machinery line, and guess what? It's John Kerwin, right? Who is the retired All Blacks, and we're going to pay him nine hundred thousand dollars a year, and so we'd actually literally turn up to work in their overalls, not do any work, but then basically then get back down and then and then and go, go and do the weights. So we had a guy at NTT who for a couple of years would actually go to work with a briefcase full of shredded paper. And sit there for the day, <laughs> and then go to lunch. It's like Seinfeld. Um, sorry, uh, um, in Seinfeld, working at the Yankees, George. You know, and so then he'd go to lunch with them and stuff, and they'd come to the games and watch him. So it's this charade that was taking place for a long time in Japanese rugby, and eventually they're like, when when World Rugby said like, oh, we're going to go professional now, the Japanese were kind of like, well, we've kind of been doing that now for about twenty years, um, and now it's become a sea of guys over there. But th- it's limited by uh, the amount of foreigners you can have on the field. But what was really interesting during my time there was the amount of CVs of rugby league players that would come across our desks mm-hmm. of guys trying to shift um, shift codes. I think at one stage we, we spoke to Willie Mason, who was looking at coming over. I think he went up at Toulon or something. And knowing what I know now about transfer of codes and how hard it is and when to do it, like it was crazy to look at it. Um, but someone like Craig had already played rugby union, so it wasn't too hard for him. But there was a lot of, you know, this, even for him, there was a lot of transference and difficulty in in coming across, but uh, no, it's it's. Um, they had the Rugby World Cup last year, and it was it was fantastic. To be honest with you, it was a it was a great event, and and sort of showcased the the, the nuttiness that is Japan to the rest of the world. Well, it's, it sounds like a very rich post career career to get where you are now. Uh, just before we turn to the rugby situation more broadly, can you tell us a bit about what you're doing now? Sure. So, so the kind of post-career was I, I got injured. I started coaching club in Sydney. I then went to uh, the Western Force, which was an expansion franchise in Super Rugby. I was there for a year, left, went to Japan for two years, came back, was involved with the Melbourne Rebels, which was another expansion franchise, 2010-11. Uh, went back to Japan again. Uh, for a year, I was at Suntory and then came home. It's basically the team I had, I worked on, went undefeated and they fired me at the end of the season. So I thought I'll come back to Australia and, and start this data analytics company. And then I've been running that company now seven and a half years. We're just coming up on and we work with teams, uh, mostly on governance, 
but how governance affect performance, how competition structure affect performance, how, you know, expansion and contraction affects teams, not only within the competition, but also, you know, for example, in the league. So, you know, one of the biggest drivers of Queensland's success and state of origin was they were all coming from three clubs. You know, that was a, that was a mass, had a massive impact on performance. And so, um, I've been trying to sort of solve a puzzle around, uh, what we call cohesion analytics, which is what is the actual drivers of success? Is it coaching? Is it facilities? Is it skill? Um, is it, is it recruitment? And then, um, trying to build an understanding of that over a period of time and then working with clubs to make it, to make it better. And so we've worked about 60 or 70 different sports or clubs now in different sports, about sort of 10, 12 different sports that we look at. But generally it's just how teams function. It, it seems there's an element of quantifying the unquantifiable in, in some of the work you're doing. And I've, I've seen uh, some of the stuff you put on Twitter. There's some some interesting modeling going on. So how, how much of it is, is maths? How much of it is looking at culture? Like how are you squaring all these things? So, um, so the, the one thing we can't do is we can't measure culture. There's nothing you can do fundamentally to measure those components. You can measure the outcomes of it. But, you know, if you let's take culture as an idea, right? So let's say there's lots of examples of teams winning, but when they do, people generally tend to point to culture without necessarily understanding it. But, but if I give you an example of probably one of the worst cultures that's ever existed in the history of sport would be, you know, the 2006 West Coast Eagles, right? Mm. Problem, they won everything. You know, that team, they won, they're in the final 16 of 18 years. They won three titles. In that team in 06, which won, you know, one guy unfortunately has passed away, three are in jail, 10 of them arrested on drugs, charges, assault, you know, like it's the worst bunch of human beings behavioural ever in Australian sport. And so um, I actually asked Chris Judd, what was it like to play for them? He said it was just a machine. Everybody knew their role. Everybody had an incredible level of understanding with each other. But he said off-field wasn't great. He said I went to Carlton, which was rugby rugby's you know, recent example would be like the Parramatta Reels, although they're very good this year. And so, so that's rugby league's version. But he said at Carlton, everyone was doing the best they could, but it's just pure chaos. So what I, what I, if I can't measure culture, what can I measure? So what I'm trying to measure is the level of understanding that players have with each other. And there's different ways to measure that understanding. So one of them is games for the club, for example. But if you change coach, They'll change systems. Now, one of the other th- components is is stability. One of the most interesting components about the Super League war is how much it destabilized certain clubs and actually stabilized others. Some a lot, some of them came out of it much better than other clubs. Um, and what was the impact of that? And then this is all sort of comes down to, you know, governance. You know, I, I've had a lot of conversations with people about the Eels, and and one of the things that was talked about was, you know, post Fitzgerald. They limited the tenure on the board, and that sort of meant the Eels have always looked a little bit short-term. And, you know, over a sort of a 20-year period, I think under Fitzgerald, they won 56% of their games, and then uh, post that period, I think they only won 36% of their games. So what? how does governance affect coaching? Why do clubs panic and constantly change coaches? Does changing the coach make it better? And then there's all these other forms of understanding. Um, we did a piece recently on jerseys, so we found that if you changed your jersey and it was fundamentally different from your normal jersey, you won uh, 30% less games. But wow. that's only a one-off. So, you know, the last weekend, the Eels were the team that had the only jersey that was very different to what they normally wear. They kind of struggled a little bit against the Bulldogs, but we've looked at that over a five-year, ten-year basis. So, um, so for example, the Knights with their high-vis jersey, you know, they'll tend to struggle a little bit. And, and what's interesting about it is they tend to do worse, but 
their, their defense stays exactly the same. They still allow the same amount of points, but their attack drops by about six or seven points. That's actually the same in both league and union. So it's a little thing, um, but but then we look at other components, you know, playing games together. Um, you know, one of the teams at the moment that's really impressive is Penrith, and a lot of it is driven off them playing games together through the uh, through their juniors. You know, most of their spine played through H, is it HG Ball, is that right? I apologise. SG. SG Ball, apologies. Um, you know, and the Holden Cup and all those sort of things. So we're trying to measure all of those components and how much they... They, uh, they affect it. And then another part of it is, you know, if you play a certain position and you change positions, so, for example, if you play fullback and go to wing, does that affect your performance? Because you've got to learn and unlearn not, not only systems but also positions. Um, and in different sports, that's affected in different ways. So that, these are all components we can measure. And so we have on a sort of per-game basis now about we're up now, I think next year we'll have about 2,000 pieces of outcome data per game about... Wow. What we call the cohesion of the teams, but they're all very measurable, and that's it's 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 reasonably accurate. It's getting better. I mean, um, this is my degenerate mind working, but like, how does this affect your gambling on the game? <laughs> so we we start the season at about seventy two percent accuracy, and the market starts at about fifty percent accuracy, and then they catch up because most of their notions are built on form. Uh, so it takes about eight nine weeks for them to catch us. But what they're not oh, yeah. necessarily sure of is why they're winning. So we know Penrith are good, but that wasn't necessarily, unless you listen to Phil Gould, that wasn't necessarily said in the preseason. Um, so we, we tend to be better at the longer view of how teams are going to go. Um, but, but the problem is because we work with clubs and we receive the team lists before they come out, um, that, that there's some slight illegalities in regards to that about betting, from my understanding. Um, and also we tend to work with corporates as well. So we kind of find that area pretty dodgy. And if you do well in gambling, they ban you anyway and you have to set it up every <laughs> offshore and that sort of stuff. So we decided to go down another path, um, with our work, which is, which was working with clubs and working with, with teams. I was only kidding with the betting thing there, but I mean, I've that's been asked so- that a thousand times, oh, believe yeah. me. <laughs> if I could just tell you a quick story. So I was at a conference in the US, um, uh, at, at, um, called Leaders in Sport and they have a thing which is they take all the speakers and they all sit at a room and so we had all these kind of guys in football so like Jared Houllier and, and the Yankees and all these NHL clubs so I start talking about cohesion to these guys and I'm sort of pinching myself and this hand goes up at the back and I'm like yes and he said oh I, I want to talk about State of Origin it's my favourite sport of all time I would watch State of Origin every year my favourite player is Alfie Langer and Mal Meninga and it was Ivan Lendl. What? Yeah, yeah, and I said, I just said, before I answer that, on what planet was this ever going to happen in my life that I was ever going to be talking to <laughs> Ivan Lendl? He said, well, Tony Roach was my coach. He said he would bring me videos of State of Origin every year, and I just love Queenslanders. I mean, the guy's, you know, from the Czech Republic, he shows no passion. But when he was talking about Alfie Langer, <laughs> there was literally spit coming out his face, and he's going purple, how passionate he was. So I told... um we, we've done some stuff for the Titans. So I told Mal that story and he's like, this is just like this whole crossover universe uh, of these kind of people I get to speak to. So that was probably the greatest moment of my of my entire career at sport or anything. So cool. I, I knew we were going to have a, a diverse, interesting chat. I had no idea it would <laughs> feature <laughs> Ivan Lendl being a <laughs> devoted Queensland fan. Uh, can I just ask one question about the data outcomes? Like, um, have you um, looked at centre of excellences? So facilities really have no impact on performance. Like, like you know, if you look okay. at Geelong in the AFL, 
They had, you know, the worst facilities and yet won everything. The guy I got to know reasonably well, of Jimmy Bartel, who was part of that Geelong kind of dynasty. If you look at Newcastle when they won, it was out the back of a shed. You know, that stuff, that stuff is, is the 1%. Um, the stuff we're looking at, the cohesion is more about like 40% differential in performance. As long as you can keep, basically keep the players on the field, you know, you look at, you look at English football, you know, they've spent, I think, 120 million euro or something on their center of excellence and they lose to Iceland, whose coach is a dentist, you know, so mm. there's, there's, <laughs> there's things that affect performance and there's things that don't really make too much difference. And for me, the notion of a center of excellence is, is, Sometimes you spend money you don't really have to spend, but it looks good and it's friendly and stuff like that. But I always think about guys like Gordy Tallis, you know, when everyone's got their gear and Gordy Tallis just rocks up with his boots in a plastic bag and maybe a mouth guard if he feels like it. And, you know, and, <laughs> and Joey John's running up the hills in Newcastle. Like the stuff that really makes the fundamental difference is do I know what I'm doing? Do I know who I'm doing it with? Do I know what the plan is? And then everything after that is kind of secondary. I, I go back to a uh, year I'm researching at the moment, 1996, where West, under the coaching of Tommy Rodonikis, did you know quite well. And the secret to their success, Tommy, all the players said it, it all came down to Chili's Hill, which was basically a Chili's restaurant out at Campbelltown. There was a glorified patch of dirt behind it that the team would run up and down relentlessly all off season, and and that was the key to it. So. You don't need the center of excellence. <laughs> yeah. So, so, um, so is that 1996? Is that right? Yeah. 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 So, so like I'm looking at the data now for that year and, and I guarantee it wasn't Chili's. Like <laughs> <laughs> they, they, interesting, like they got absolutely, like they were the one of the clubs who got absolutely decimated by the war, like the Super League war. Mm. So they, they dropped 40%, 50% in their strength in two years post. Sort of ninety seven, yeah, and so they they came out of that the other end. They Souths, the Steelers, Gold Coast just got like it was almost like they ta- were targeting them to contractually destabilize them. Whereas all the Super League teams actually came out stronger. Not necessarily like Eels, Roosters, and Dragons came out better. Knights came out better, but quite a number of the ARL teams really came out worse off for it. We're, we're going to have to get you back to do a, a whole hour on just data and and all of this stuff. But I, I do want to turn to the subject at hand uh, and. One of the reasons I wanted to get you on is that despite our obnoxious comments about rugby union on a regular basis, we, we seem to attract uh, some rational rugby union fans who put up with us. Uh, so I wanted, in, in a, you know, extending an olive branch, spirit of goodwill, I wanted to give you the chance to be the proxy for rugby union and its fans uh, and just put into words why we're wrong and, and what we're getting wrong about rugby union. I think first things first is like I'm a very big fan of history and, and when I, when you really look at the at the core of to why rugby league broke away from rugby union, you know, it was, it was fundamentally unfair for those in the north about, you know, just simply a, a need to be compensated. And, you know, it's the, the way I describe the war between, you know, rugby league and rugby union, I don't know if you've ever seen the, the movie um, Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. And there's a yeah, scene where yeah. the, the guy walks away and goes, you know, I hate those southern fairies. And the guy goes, I hate those northern <laughs> monkeys. You know, for me, my family history being from the north, it just seems so dumb that they didn't sort out the problem as they had it then, which was which was a form of compensation for those guys who were working in, in, in um, labouring. And so there's this kind of snobbery that is that can be associated with rugby union, but that's what they wanted to hold on to. 
Um, and it was almost like they were trying to lock people out of the game, which is pretty, pretty frustrating. And, and you look at obviously what took place with France later on, um, down the track. Now, that's not something I know much about, I'll be honest with you, but, but from what I can understand, like the French really, you know, there was quite a big Nazi influence in the, in the, in rugby union at that time. And, and, um, and they really tried to close, to kill rugby league off as a game. Then I really do think that games can sort of quite easily coexist because they have such a different uh, feel about them and such a different demographic and then also such a, you know, they're now so fundamentally diverse. I think one thing that Rugby Union does is is we treat Rugby League as overly simplistic and it's not. And, and the best way to describe it is Rugby Union is complex with simplicity. In other words, we don't do things technically well, but there's a much greater variance of the skills like line-out lifting, like, you know, like kickoff receipt, like uh, like the scrums, but we're nowhere near as technically strong. So when you look at a guy like Cameron Smith and the level of detail he goes into, that even though rugby league is is more simple, you know there, you know if you look at the way the Storm try to get to the shoulders of players, there's so much accuracy in the way that those guys do business that it's much more uh, technical than rugby union is in those details. Um, mm-hmm. Now when I when you look at the, the game worldwide, you know, there's, there's such a, you know, it's kind of interesting to see that people in Australia have this kind of battle between the two games, you know, in, within Australia, but that's not really a contest that exists anywhere else. The game is fundamentally separate everywhere else except Australia. So you've got the north of the UK, you've got the, you've got the south of England, you've, in France, it's, but they're fundamentally played in different areas of the country. South Africa doesn't, it's not really there. You know, Japan, Italy, it's not really there. So it really only seems to be this part of the world that the game kind of, that they bump into each other. But I don't think you're wrong about rugby. I think everything you say is true. Um, but, but at the same time, there is things that are positive about it. And, and the game is, it's, it's in terrible health in Australia right now, but around the world it's generally growing. Um, so the amount of professional teams in rugby is kind of growing about two or three teams a year. And the competitions, there's a new professional competition about once every sort of five years. And in terms of, you know, the World Cup, that's going quite well. But there is a transfer of talent to the north um, that, that was sort of was taking place in the mid-90s, I think, with the strength of the pound. You know, one thing was really interesting when I started looking at a lot of rugby league data is how many guys were playing perpetual seasons. So they just play Parramatta, Warrington, Parramatta, Warrington, Parramatta, Warrington all year. And then when they switched to the Super League season and the strength of the pound wasn't as strong, Super League sort of fell away. But there was a time when, when, you know, rugby league in Australia was under, you know, its greatest threat and away from English rugby league. Mm. You know, if I look at, if I look at the greatest mistakes that rugby's taken as one, you can't beat poker machines. We should, rugby union should never have tried to take on the strength of poker machines in Australia. Like, if rugby league can't kill its own teams off, how can rugby union attempt to do it? Um, and then, um, and, and I think also the problem for rugby in Australia is you have to serve two masters. So rugby league in Australia doesn't really mind how the Australian rugby league team does, whereas it, it the success of rugby in Australia is based on how the Wallabies do, not on not as much on how the domestic game goes. And so you kind of have to decide what you want to do. Do you want to take on rugby league and the NRL, or do you want to do you want to make sure the Wallabies are successful? And those kind of two things often work against each other. Um, so no, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed listening to your podcast, and I. I, I try to have as much of a balanced view, and particularly as we work across so many sports, we can't afford to make enemies, you know, in different different codes. But the best way I describe it is the closest team to the Melbourne Storm is the Canterbury Crusaders, you know, mm. or 
the closest team to, the, to Parramatta has probably been Carlton, you know. So, so there's yeah. excellence in both. There's good governance in both, and there's and there's the opposite sometimes. Well, that was um, how a, a balanced and nuanced view of the sports is uh, is articulated. <laughs> Not like Michael and I, but. Um... <laughs> You're, you're supposed to be biased. That's your job. So that makes sense. <laughs> uh, just a quick one on rugby. Like um, with the current state of the of the of the domestic competition, how do you see the pathway to the Wallabies going forward? So, so we have a certain view about what's caused the demise of Australian rugby, and um, fundamentally, I think it was that that attempt to take on rugby league. Um, so we 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 sort of. Uh, you know, the, we, there were, we had an advantage in Australian rugby, which was fundamentally we were coming from two two clubs, much in the same way that you know Queensland State of Origin was coming from Broncos, Cowboys, Storm. Um, in fact, there was a period in Australian rugby when Queensland Rugby Union collapsed, and basically New South Wales was playing as Australia. As Australia. So this is in the 1920s, and they won 36 percent more games with half the population not playing. So um, what, what's happened over time is that is that we've gotten weaker through a number of different mechanisms and the rest of the world's gotten stronger, particularly the Celtic nations, uh, the Irish, the Welsh, the Scottish, even the Japanese. So their improvement has made a partial difference towards uh, the, the, uh, the performance of the Wallabies and then, and then we've gotten worse off because structurally we've actually, we've actually created a, a system that's actually weaker than it was previously. So when we look at cohesion in 1999 when we won the World Cup, we were about 40 to 50% better than everyone else in the world simply from a cohesion perspective. So we, we had this ridiculous advantage in the same way that Queensland had that advantage for 11 years with the state of origin. Australia had that advantage over the rest of the world. We're now about seventh or eighth for cohesion, and our results reflect that. But I mean, you mentioned the cherry blossoms. Like J- Japan went from um, Japan went from one hundred and forty nil in ninety five against the All Blacks to being competitive. It's amazing. It is, but but when when you start to look at it in context, so the previous two World Cups, they basically sat the national team out for two years leading into the tournament, and so that's that's had a huge advantage for them. There's a, there's a lot of domestic teams in Japan, so if you throw the national team together, they do generally get annihilated, and then there's been you know like a lot of foreign coaches go over there and do well. Um, they also made the mistake of putting their B team against New Zealand at that point. Um, and, you know, when you, whenever you basically throw together a team that's never played together, I don't know if you've ever seen the Dream Team, they actually lost their first game to a college team. So no matter how talented yeah, you right. are, if you don't know each other, you'll lose. And and that was that scenario in the same way that the All Blacks, you know, they've thrown poor together, teams together and lost lost themselves. Um, and so the, the it's, it's interesting, actually, Wales, uh, there's a guy called Warren Gatland, he took over the job of Wales of um, of coaching Wales and didn't know who to pick, and he had five days before his first game. So he picked the entire Ospreys team as the national team, and uh, and won the whole thing. Went undefeated through the whole tournament. Now that's not that's not always the perfect answer, but it's pretty bloody handy if you can do it. Um, and so some systems allow that, and others don't. I want to go. I want to go back to the nineties and the forces involved in rugby going professional and and eventually getting us to where we are today. Uh, one of the pushbacks we got on our rugby union chapter was overselling the the influence of shamateurism in the Australian context. So I just w- was hoping you could just touch on amateurism. So this is a very open ended question. So any any insight you might have about uh, you know your personal experiences growing up or your view on the concept. 
So, so I have a slightly different one, which was rugby's always been shamateurish. Shamateurish. I don't know. If that, is that the right way to say it? Shamateur. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's different. But fundamentally, you know, when you've got a, a network as powerful as rugby, and if, if you think about it, so you, you're a young guy, you know, living in London, you know, in the 1900s, and you're a, you're a lawyer, and, you know, and you want to play for England, if you play for England, you, you'll get a, law, a job with any law firm you want, and they'll continue to pay you even if you're not there. Now, that's theoretically still amateur, but that's pretty heavy bias. And that's always existed in rugby, jobs for the boys, jobs for people, you know, on the side. You know, if you play for Australia, theoretically, you know, you'll get a job where if you want it, and it's yours to stuff up. And so that, that relationship has always existed, and there's always been a, a bias um, in, in all sports, whether they're amateur or not. So for me, um, you know, we, the, the, the professionalism of rugby was simply a confirmation of what had been going on for a very long period of time, um, which is that people are always going to help out people who are doing something they like, you know, or, or representing their country. And no, I don't think it should be understated at all. But the, the, there was obviously existence of it. So David Campisi would head off to Benetton every year, you know, and get a car and get paid, whereas that wasn't, it wasn't legal. But they, what started to happen actually towards about sort of 93, 94, 95 with the Wallabies was that the per diems got quite big. You know, you'd get sort of like allowances for the day, but you don't really need a thousand dollars a day to do your washing, but maybe sort of we got to that point. I don't know what it was, but I, but I, but I think it got pretty, uh, got pretty impressive. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it would be silly of us to say that rugby wasn't professional in some form, really, realistically, the whole way through its history. It's a point I wish we made stronger in that chapter is for me, the hypocrisy isn't in the brown paper bags. It is in what you're saying. It, it's the, the rugby network. And if you look at the, the 91 Rugby World Cup winning squad compared to the 92 Rugby League World Cup winning squad, you know, I don't see David Gillespie on the boards of, you know, investment banks in, in Paris, you know. I think that's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, do, I do think, though, that um, there is the influence of people um, of, in Rugby League, you know, as we saw with the Super League war, you know, there are people mm. who've become very successful over time. Um, but I think the problem with rugby in a way is kind of preordained. If you look at anybody who's been successful in rugby league and then been successful in the boardroom, it's almost they've probably had to prove themselves a lot more. Whereas people are coming out of rugby, it's like they think automatically you can be trusted. They think automatically you must know about finance, that you must know somebody at Macquarie Bank. So it, it, you actually don't probably have to prove yourself as much, which is often to the detriment because it probably a lot of guys think that they deserve those type of things without it. Uh, without necessarily being qualified for it. So uh, I, I don't um, – I think there's a lot of problems with that in rugby, and I don't necessarily think it's a good thing. But, yeah, you're right. There's a lot of people in, posi- in the hallways of power, so to speak, um, that are involved in the game. But there's a, there's a lot of people, too, who just play it on an amateur level. I, I, th- I think rugby is not necessarily as stratified from a socioeconomic perspective as it is in Australia. Like it is in the UK. It's very much a private school game. But if you go to places like Spain – it's not regarded as an elite game. It's not regarded that way mm. in South Africa. For South Africa, it's the whole Wales. Yeah, Wales. It's like it's like um, it's like AFL in Melbourne. You get the whole range of demographic across the whole components. In Australia, it's a little bit a little bit stratified. But I would say, you know, like probably one of the best days we ever had with the Wallabies was sitting down and watching the O three Grand Final, watching Penrith beat Roosters. We went absolutely crazy uh, with you know in the room, absolutely loving the experience. 
And um, what I always tend to find is when I meet rugby league players and I meet involved in the game, we have much more in common with each other having been professional footballers. And there isn't this distaste for each other. The distaste actually comes amidst the fans. Mm-hmm. Being, like I meet people in AFL and you meet coaches all the time. It's all the same stuff fundamentally. You know, you get good behavior, bad behavior. You get idiots, you know, and, and the good thing about teams is they tend to shut that stuff down. But the, the, the disagreements more come between the codes. People in rugby league and rugby union don't want to destroy the other code, but the fans of them do. Um, and they, they tend to have much more of a hateful view towards the code, yeah. towards the governing bodies than the actual players who, you know, um, like I've, I've become friends with Danny Baderis, one of the greatest men you'll ever meet in your life. He's an amazing guy. And, you know, all of our experiences are very, very similar. I mean, like, it's almost like Twitter come to life, the uh, the fans in Universe League, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and, it, and it's this notion of that basically they, they believe they hate each other, they believe they're at a distance, you know, that, that they will never meet on the same, that one has to be better than the other. It, it doesn't necessarily have to be that way, and it doesn't have to be as, as confrontational. Of course, it's extremely fun, but, but we're not, <laughs> you know, the, the, the term that you guys actually I use all the time which is which is from one of the uh, podcasts, which is, you know, um, is it, am I allowed to swear? Is that okay? Yeah, yeah. You know, between conspiracy and fuck up, always choose fuck up. Like, I, I use that quote every yeah. day. Um, you know, <laughs> <laughs> most of the time we're not trying to stuff each other up. It just, it just ends up that way. Well, I mean, I was preparing for this interview and I just had, to th- I had a thought about why I, I hate it so much. And it just comes down to class. It's, it's like I, I admire the, the old amateur days of like, blokes playing in playing jerseys and not getting paid and doing it with their mates and just playing for the love of the game. But you can only get into that club if you're born into it in, in, in that rarefied English uh, rugby union style of you know gentleman's game. So it's a great thing if you're in it, but if you can't get in it, <laughs> you're excluded. Uh, I, I don't I don't think it's a, much of a case about being born into it. I think you, you grow up amongst it. You know, if I was still in the UK, I would have played rugby league, no question. My dad was – I wouldn't have even seen rugby union – it's just what I grew up in. It's it's the Pudsey, which is just outside of Leeds. You know, I would, would have been probably Salford or Warrington or whatever. You know, or or, or the, God bless, play for the Rhinos. But it, you know, I then came to Australia. You know, the 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 woman my dad married. You know, her her husband liked rugby. My son, my brother went to a rugby school, so there I I did, and therefore I sort of became part of it. But it's it's oftentimes just circumstantial. Um, but it's not yeah. it's not royalty. We're not we're not definitely born into it. But if you go to New Zealand. You know, it's not that way. You simply your town has a rugby team, has a rugby league team. If you want to play either, it's not a problem. There isn't. There isn't. I was sort of thinking about that. Um, that you know, the, the 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 rugby you see on the postage stamp of the of the English afternoons in the country. You know? yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and, and and like I said, yeah, it is definitely stratified in the UK and the whole. You know, it's it's money is money can be such a huge separator. And the people who've got it want to protect it, and the people who don't want to, want to probably get at it. And so, and I'm not saying the two games exist within that scenario, but th- there's an automatic mistrust often between classes, and that manifests itself in sports sometimes. But then, once you come out the other side of it as a player, you kind of forget all that stuff, and it's like, you know, there's dickheads in rugby union, there's dickheads in rugby league, and 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 they they seem to be equal in number. <laughs> I doubt that. I doubt that very much. I think we win. <laughs> well, there's different, there's different types, but but it's like um, it's like I, I remember going to Dubbo, and Dubbo's got like two rugby teams, and you go to one rugby team, and the and let's say the the I can't remember if it's the Dubbo Bulls or whatever. So you talk to the guys at Dubbo Bulls, and they're like they automatically hate the blokes of the Dubbo Rams, 
And it's like, those blokes, we can't trust them. <laughs> yeah. There was this incident that happened, you know, 20 years ago, and, you know, they, they, they punched our bloke in the face. Then you go to the Rams, and they're like, <laughs> our, bloke, our bloke headbutted his guy, and he was just protecting his head, and he punched him accidentally and turned into war. That's kind of the battle between rugby union and rugby league. And it's like, you have so much in common, it's insane, and yet you focus on the differences. Like, most yeah. of the people of the world can't tell the difference between rugby union and rugby league, so they just call it rugby. And then people in both codes get up in arms when that happens. Like, well, they probably should think that because they're pretty similar. I think there's there's a lot of food for thought for Andy and I. Yeah, honestly, it makes us look it makes us look like real dummies. But the um, but friend of the show, Steve Mascord, the journalist, he's always on about that because he's like you know travels the world watching rugby league. And um, when someone blows up about it getting called rugby, he's like, no one knows rugby league exists in the northern hemisphere. Well, it depends on where you're from. Yeah, and that's simply time. Like that's 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 the case of of, of rugby union came first and rugby league came out of it. Um, you know, of of course there was the NFL which also came out of it and. and um, you know, in its own version, but these things are just disparate. I mean, there are people who play. I mean, you guys probably don't know the difference between bandy and ice hockey, do you? I do. Okay, yeah, but that's quite rare. But most people don't necessarily know the difference. If they saw it, they go, "Well, that looks like the same game." But I imagine some people in bandy would absolutely blow up about people saying, "Oh, that's ice hockey." But that seems so ridiculous yeah, yeah. to us at a distance, doesn't it? Well, it's like it's like squash and racquetball. Yeah, <laughs> and that's it's almost a form of snobbery on both our behalves. Isn't it like it's? It's you want to have that differential, and how dare we say that those things are the same thing? They're massively different. Also, the fact that we we go we we go hard on the old boys network, yet ours is financed by gambling money. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, and 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 and, um, and I actually worked in a pokies lounge uh, at my old rugby club, Norths, and and I saw some of that stuff firsthand. And it's yeah, you definitely change your view of pokies once you've done that. Let's look at the aftermath of Super League and the. The rise of Super Rugby, which you know came almost directly out of the Super League threat. You played your Super Rugby career in what I consider the height of that competition. From an outsider, it, it seems like that was was the high point. Do you have any feelings on on that? I think it, I think it was, but I don't necessarily. It's it's always I think it's always the reasons for what people believe it to be. But um, one of the things that we we look at a lot with competitions is when you start a competition, the, the most successful ones are built on top of something else. So if, if you look, for example, when they started the Big Bash, they started the Big Bash upon teams that already existed fundamentally, which was the Sheffield Shield teams and the one-day teams. And interestingly, the, the teams like Perth and Hobart and Brisbane and um, Adelaide did much better at the start of Big Bash because they were basically, it was an extension of the Sheffield Shield team. And the one that struggled for engagement crowds were the Sydney and Melbourne teams, and eventually they sort of, they came good. So rugby, the super rugby competition was built on top of already existing teams. So it had a huge advantage from that perspective. Even the, the Brumbies had a team underneath them, which was the Kookaburras in the Sydney competition. That was a huge advantage to them. So that was one component that, that, that helped it. And also there was other versions of super rugby prior, but they were very kind of short term. Like they only played like sort of five or six games for a season. The other th- Sorry, can I just um, stop on that? Because I wanted to ask about that, the precursor, the, the Super 10s. Do you think that's something that if Super League didn't come around, if, if professionalism didn't come in when it did, do you think that's something that potentially would have grown and, and led to professionalism on its own? It was happening, it was happening anyway. Yep. Guys had gone from jobs for the boys to per diems out the wazoo for the boys to Japanese rugby. It just accelerated the process, and and it was it was going to happen anyway, but it, but it really made world rugby stop 
and say, okay, we've got to do something about this. But that, that, that sort of came off, off the back of a, you know, there was some, there was some opportunity with that WRC, which was again the Packer Murdoch, but just with the, you know, the shoe on the other foot, um, you know, fighting over, over the, the TV rights for a theoretical competition. I think if, if that competition had gone ahead, rugby would be a much worse off place because basically mm-hmm. they want to shift the entire thing to the US, which just would not have yep. worked. It would have been an absolute unmitigated disaster. So, so we ended up with the right outcome. But it was, it's also up against the background of Test Rugby. So Test Rugby is so powerful. You know, the TV rights for it, the World Cup, that's where the, the crowds come in. You know, I, I went to a, I went to a, um, the watch the series between the, the British and Irish Lions and, and New Zealand in 2005. And if, if you think rugby people in Australia have money, try the British when, you know, it's, it's three, <laughs> it's three New Zealand dollars to the pound. So they ran out of hotel rooms in New Zealand. So they brought in ships to house everybody. <laughs> and I tried to get money out of an ATM in, uh, in Wellington at three o'clock in the morning. And Wellington had run out of money. Like they'd literally <laughs> taken it all out of the whole place. And they're just spending thousands of pounds a night, you know, on whatever they were doing. Um, so, so, you know, it, it, it can be quite powerful. Rugby World Cups can be quite powerful. I think Australian rugby made about 50 million out of the World Cup in 03. And it wasn't as successful as it is now, um, and the rights for it. So that has its own controlling elements. And then the domestic game, um, what, what's starting to happen now, though, is the domestic game is starting to sort of take over a bit, particularly in Europe. There's a lot of uh, CVC money. They're the guys who invest in Formula One that are starting to invest in the games and the, invest in the domestic games. And the difficulty with that is that once the clubs start to become more powerful, it'll then negatively impact Test Rugby. And that's starting to be a problem. So, for example, a lot of the clubs in France won't release the Polynesian players to play for their countries in the World Cup. Or they'll say, you have to, if you're going to come to France, you've got to retire. So you can't play for France. You can, so you can't play for Fiji. You can't play for these other mm. places. And that, that's quite pernicious. That's and that's really, yeah, that's not great. That has a negative impact. So that's the next concern for rugby, which is, which is, um, private equity coming in and starting to control the agenda in terms of what they want, and, and so started to buy up the Pro 14, which is the, the sort of uh, Celtic League, the, 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 the Premiership, um, and the French League, the, the amount of money in that competition has been, it's coming off now, but it's been pretty astronomical. Um, teams with budgets, sort of 30 million, something like that, and just throwing money at the problem, and French rugby as a test nation has been much worse off for it. Um, but, yes, yeah, so, so I, think, I think to answer to your question, there was a, there was a momentum about it, but there was a lot more. There was probably a lot more things to play out. But this war basically accelerated, and and we and you and we noticed too that the northern hemisphere took a bit longer to get their stuff together. Not only in in Super League with rugby league, but also with rugby union, and it took a while for them to be to be effective. Whereas we slipped straight into the Tri Nations and Super Rugby networked really really effectively. Now I love the Nick Far Jones quote about being at that meeting in August and saying it was like they were attending their own funeral. <laughs> In terms of the, uh, the the signing for the, no, the WIC, no, no. In, in terms of the the Northern Hemisphere um, going professional, yes, they didn't want it to happen. And if you look at how much money the RFU makes, like they own Twickenham, it's got hotels. Like they're losing money at the moment because they're not financially managing very well. But the they, the Northern Hemisphere do have great resources, and they really didn't want the game to go professional because they were simply making so much money out of it. Much in the same way that mm. Australian cricket was doing so well out of the one dayers, you know, or the test matches, you know, the, the players were being paid a pittance. Um, and that, that had to change at some point. And there was going to be, 
a change in the dynamic of the player power, and that's exactly what happened. I've, I do have a quick point I want to make though on, the, on on Super Rugby. So there's a, there's a number we use, which is the contractual stability of the clubs we talked about earlier. At that point, the average we use a number called TWI. The average TWI of the comp Super Rugby was about 80, 90 percent, and the Australian teams were th- three of them were at ninety two percent. So basically, they were fundamentally built almost similar to how the Crusaders of the Storm are now. Now, that's at now 52% across the five Australian teams or the four Australian teams. So what happens when you get massive levels of churn or chaos is, one, fans don't show up as often because they don't know the players. They're coming and going all the time. You don't, you're not as effective in terms of your wins on the field. And so the entire Super Rugby competition has been dropping in that space, and that's come about through one reason is the expansion of the number of teams in Australia and in South Africa. Um, but the, the Crusaders, for example, have maintained that standard, but you can't just have one good team in a competition. You've got to have good teams against each other, and that's what Super Rugby's kind of lacked, is good teams against each other on a perpetual basis. As a, I mean, uh, as a casual rugby union follower, I, I knew the Brumbies in your era, like Gregan and all the, all the guys and Roth and that sort of thing, because I was a Canberra fan in rugby league, so I followed them a little bit. And in the last five years, I, I wouldn't know who plays for who. Yeah, and that, that's the thing, is that, that you... you there's a lot of really interesting research in this area in sport in the US around, you know, the impact of contractual stability and, you know, fandom. So you want to have a relationship with the players. You want to know who they are. And, and, and what that means is you'll turn up even when they're losing. Now, the AFL is the most stable league in the world. And there is, you know, it can't, it can't be, um, you know, torn apart except by itself. And the AFL's done a great job in basically stabilizing that league from the mid 80s, whereas in a bit of a, a basket case. And um, I remember hearing Ross Oakley talk about the Brisbane Bears, and he basically said to them, if you keep signing guys like Warwick Kappa, I'll tear your license up. And basically mm-hmm. made them take, you know, their draft picks, which was Black, Brown, Voss, and those you know, guys all became the Brisbane Lions and had a huge amount of success. And, and the difficulty is in rugby union, rugby league, is there is competing codes, there is competing competitions, competing teams. Mm-hmm. And so we, we it's much harder to keep teams together, whereas the AFL... You know, it's, it's very, very well built, but it doesn't have any competitors, you know, in terms of for the athletes. And so they, they just run themselves so brilliantly. So you get examples like Collingwood versus Carlton, both out of the finals and both drawing 55,000 people. You know, the only other competitions yeah. like that in the world would be Gaelic football. Um, another one actually interesting is the Bundesliga in Germany actually draws bigger crowds in the EPL and they really focus on the academies. They really focus on bringing people through the system. But they're able to do that in the Bundesliga, even with a um, you know other other competitions from other you know other, other football clubs and other competitions. But it's it is very hard to do. But that was that was the advantage that Super League gave Rugby Union for about four or five years. Is you know you had twenty two teams coming and going. I think you had twenty two changes of teams either coming, going, merging, you know, ceasing to exist in about seven years, and that in and of itself dropped the standard of the competition, dropped the understanding between the players. And so you then came out of that with only a couple of well-run, a couple of clubs in a good state and everyone else was basically a basket case. And so rugby league, though, has continued to go up in its cohesion, go up in its understanding between the players, go up in its standard, whereas rugby union's gone the other way for a whole number of reasons. But that's that's why we are where we are. Your era also saw the, which which turned out to be a, uh, in, in an Australian context, something that was a bit of a temporary state of affairs, but going hard after rugby league talent. Uh, you know, in, in, in your area, you had 
Dell, Matt Rogers, Lottie Takiri all come over. I wonder what you think about that as a tactic. Was it just a destabling thing on, on rugby league? Was it marketing? Was there a general genuine on-field benefit to getting those guys coming across? So so Eddie Jones will be pretty adamant, yes. He, he had a real love for rugby league. I think he really loved getting, you know, um, guys, guys across. You know, when I look at the team in 99 and then I look at the team in 03, we were just dealing with something else. So when, when a guy crosses over codes, I, I did a study on this actually for the RFU around the Burgess um, piece. I did it for Stuart Lancaster. I've known through a couple of people. And we basically looked at people changing codes. So if you, if you change from league to union, if you're going to do it, you want to do it before the age of 21, generally. So 21, you haven't built up so many habits in one code that's too hard to cross to the other. If you do it in the... If you do it after the age of 21, you want to do it as a wing or a fullback because they're on the end of a chain. It's not as hard. What you don't want to do is to put somebody into what is the most complex position, which is the centres. So to take a guy like Burgess for a rugby league prop and put him into the centres was just never going to be able to happen with enough time. So, you know, he's not, he didn't do anything wrong. He just never had enough time in order to be successful. So if you look at all the guys who've come across, you know, Jason Robinson did great. But if you look at, say, Henry Paul, I don't know if you ever see his first game for England. That was a train wreck. Uh, BJ, BJ <laughs> Mather, who now works for, for New South Wales Rugby League, if he works for State of Origin. Um, and, and he's, you know, he himself said it was just so hard. So generally, you know, the only one who's really done an amazing job, I think, is probably Sonny Bill, but he never really cracked the starting team for the All Blacks. He was mm-hmm. sort of like an, on the bench and was very, very effective. But it just requires so much understanding that there's a reason why all the best centres in rugby union have come from the same club. You know, Little and Horan, Bunsen, Little, Darcy and O'Driscoll all played at the same club pairing and, and therefore, you know, did such a great job as a, as a national team. So um, I would say that that it was probably – took longer than, than um, Eddie believed it to be. And so, you know, if I actually – there's a game where Australia – we played New Zealand – um, leading into that tournament, it was 2000 and, um, 2003. And the back line was, was, um, was Greg and Larkham. We had Elton Flatley at 12 and then we had Matt Rogers at 13, Wendell Saylor at 14 and we had Lottie Takiri on the wing. So it was half of the back line was, was, um, was rugby league. They put 50 mm-hmm. on us. Uh, we just got annihilated. Now, no one did anything wrong, but you could see that Matt was like, I just don't know whether to hold or pull here. I don't know whether to shoot out or not. They'd never played together in the centres um, at any stage. You know, what you don't want to ever do in, a, in an important game is to have centres together who've never played together. It's just suicide. Like, amount of times that, that manifests itself in poor performance in rugby union because they play together so much. It's so important for them to have understanding. Is, um, is it, it leads you down massive levels of difficulty. So um, I think if we did introduce them, we should have done it younger. I think that that if we had, I think we didn't have enough time, and we were still chopping that, changing that team leading into the World Cup, and so I think it had an impact. But who am I? Who am I to tell how the team would have gone if it was built any differently? But certainly, I think even by their own admission, those guys found it hard. Can I ask Ben there? Like, how I just don't understand as a layman that how is a prop playing the centres? Like, what's the thinking? Like, isn't speed some sort of concern? <laughs> Um, well, obviously, obviously, Burgess is very, very physical. He was a very highly effective carry, you know. Um, but the, the the thing I feel bad for Burgess is, is like, 
you know, he talks about how he, he said, you know, I think I, I think I did a really great job. But that's within the context of what he understands about the centres. If he sat down with Conrad mm-hmm. Smith or Tim Horan and actually went through his game, you know, we're talking about, it's like Cameron Smith's knowledge of nine. You know, that's built up over years and years and years and years and small nuance. And he never even got that chance because mm-hmm. they were, they were experimenting with him as a flanker a year out. And it's interesting because, um, Farrell, who was the backs coach for England at the time, had also been through exactly the same experience. And they tried him at flanker and tried him in the centers and it didn't work either. And, um, and Farrell's actually the father of the number 10 for England as well. But I think he sort of felt he could get it done in time. But it just, it's, these things always take longer than people believe it's going to. And, and that's why we like to look at history because history can tell you, you know, things in that area, um, and, and how you go. But people will still, people will still continue to do it. But the, the nature is fundamentally is that talent isn't necessarily portable. And, you know, you go from one team to another, you, you're not going to be as, as successful. I think on average in sport it takes about three years to hit your peak when you change clubs. Um, you know, it's, it's very specific to the situation, but then you add a code change into that and it's just like 10 times harder. It, it's interesting to see the, the rich history of, of it going the other way and the amazing success, you know, Ray Price, Ricky Stewart, Rex Mossop, all these blokes, it seems, were able to, to make Michael O'Connor make that switch relatively easy up until 1995 when you had all these players coming across for the you know expanded ARL competition and were almost universally duds. Was it that the as the game was getting professional, it was going to get harder for players to make that switch? Or do you think they were just going after the wrong blokes? Like, do you think it would have been sustainable for the, the code switch to work so well in the other direction? Generally, when guys have come across, it has been either in the forwards or on the wings. You know, if you look at Brett Papworth, I think that was much harder for him no, I'm not. I'm not so sure entirely of where they played them in rugby league, but but one thing is you did want to get them young. I think Ray Price and those guys were quite young when they came across. Yeah. Um, so that's what that's one of the most important components. Also, rugby league has increased dramatically in its complexity over the past period of time. I mean, I, I remember watching Garrick Morgan playing for the Crushers, and he'd go into the tackle and then try to lay it back like he was in a rugby union game. He just forget, mm. and that's the thing is under. Under, under stress, you revert back to what you know. I mean, how many rugby league players dive on the ball and scoop it up, you know, and out over the dead ball yeah. line in rugby union when they come across? They just don't – it's not they don't think. You just don't have time to think. So you revert back to your kind of knowledge. So um, it, it is interesting that we lost a lot of union players to rugby league as we were just about to win a World Cup. You know, like, like we actually lost a lot of guys through the 80s, but we, we did manage to sort of hold on to this sort of core group of guys – like Little and Horan, like that was a big thing whether they would go across. And I remember Griggs, of course, got that offer to the Adelaide Rams, which would have been yeah, <laughs> interesting scenario. But the thing to the thing to point out here too is that that most of the Super League teams in that period were in a lot of crisis. So we talk a lot about if you go from chaos to order. So from a like like let's say a uh, Clint Newton to the from the Newcastle Knights to the Storm, it it makes it pretty easy because everyone in the Storm knows their roles. And you just slot in and off you go. Whereas if you go from the storm out, um, oftentimes it's much yeah. harder. I, my my um my four year old is trying to go out with Ryan Hoffman's daughter, and uh, and where is she looking after his dog at the moment? Because he's in Queensland and they and they won't come back. They left for two weeks and it's like eight weeks ago, and now like <laughs> we're stuck with this dog for six months. Anyway, 
<laughs> but but uh, he talked about his time with the Warriors. And it was really hard trying to adapt to their systems and 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 you know coming out of the storm, which is just a just a factory and just beautifully written, uh, beautifully built. And I actually was talking to uh, now I'm going to completely forget his name. He served a drug ban for about three or four years, and he's now at the Melbourne Storm up until last year. Shandorel. And I, yeah, speaking to Shandorel, I said, "What's it like being at the Storm?" He said, "As a, it never occurred to me as a player." To watch the video after you trained of the of the training session and then work mm-hmm. on your technique, he said that doesn't really exist at any other club I've ever been to. So they just they've just got oh, to yeah. such a level of detail, but that requires a massive amount of stability over a long time. You don't do that in your first year; you do it in your tenth or your fifteenth year. And so, you know, when guys were coming, like they tried to bring across uh, quite a number of South Africans um, into rugby into rugby union into rugby league. Sorry, and that was. That, that, they, a lot of those guys really struggled. Tian Strauss of the Sharks, um, quite a number of them came across. And I think that's just like pe- people thinking, oh, it, it's carrying an oval ball. Of course, it's very similar. Um, it didn't necessarily work. And uh, and I think that the difficulty is we tend to remember the ones that worked. We don't remember the ones that didn't work. I mean, there's a lot of guys who went from rugby into league in the 80s who were disaster, but we don't remember them. Mm-hmm. So that was our job actually to, com- to complete a list. I'm not going to bag guys, you know, who struggled. Um, but Tony Darcy, as an example, struggled. We, he went to Penrith, was an Australian prop, and and didn't really make the heights of rugby league. And it was, you know, for those exact reasons. But we do we remember the O'Connor and the Ray Price and the Rex Mossop, but we forget the other guys. There's a, there's one that Mick and I got to ask you, uh, Ben, is about the time that Andrew Johns almost went to to the Wallabies. And um, for us in rugby league, that was like it was just the most crucial. A uh, few weeks there, and then it, it come down to Chief basically threatening th- threatening Joey to stay. <laughs> but I mean, uh, do, do you remember how close that was? Yeah, I've actually I've actually talked to Joey about it, and and just the Chief's a power broker, isn't he? Like, you know, <laughs> saves 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 the Knights, you know, in the Super League War. What tends to happen with these things is that the the change comes, the player goes across, the player struggles, and then they become less relevant and less talked about. And so I think for Joey's career, it was the best thing he could have done to stay. I mean, not many guys get to play with their brother, and that had a huge impact. You know, he had Baderis, you know, for such a long period of time. The amount of understanding between that mm-hmm. spine at the Knights was huge. And um, and you look how much Matt struggled when he went down to Cronulla. Like, he just wasn't the same player again. Not through any of his own doing. Just wasn't, it was always going to be so hard for him. So I, I think that, that there's always a lot of hype around the signings. It's like when Henry Paul went to Rugby Union. It was you know, the biggest player in rugby league at the time. And then two years later, you're like, who's Henry Ball again? And that's, there's nothing wrong yeah. with what, with him. It's just, just very, very difficult. And the problem with, with Joey is he's a, he's probably the greatest player in the history of the game on both sides of the code. But the difficulty would have been is, you know, all those guys at the Knights knew exactly what he was going to do, exactly the lines he was going to run. But in rugby union, they just would have been like, not sure what he was going to do. And so it would have taken a long time. But, 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 but um, this is this is again this is not a reflection of anyone individually. This is just yeah. the nature of the sport. Ben, this has been amazing, uh, incredible insight. We're, we're so happy we could make this happen. Just to to finish up, if you want to just touch on Gayline, is there anything uh, you're working on at the moment? Is there any particular code you're, you're trying to crack? Like what what's the last frontier? I think we're starting to understand. Uh, so so rugby league is is our kind of like our. We're using it as the canary in the mine, so we're using it as our exp- source of experimentation. Um, because one rugby league project, like without that thing, yeah. we would be stuffed. Like 
Oh, as would we. Yeah, like they they just do the most incredible job. We we if I was to encourage anybody to do anything, it's please help financially support rugby league project because it, it keeps us it keeps us um, surviving on data so brilliantly. Um, it's just the most incredible resource that doesn't exist in any, many other sports, and I don't think people necessarily appreciate that. So what I'm doing at the moment is I'm really interested in the spines and the way in which spines are built and how spines can actually come together faster than teams. So one one thing, for example, is understanding between players manifests itself in defence the most. So the highest you know teams for understanding is, at the moment is obviously the Storm and the Roosters and the Eels, and they have the best defence. But we're also interested in where, for example, misunderstanding affects performance. So it's like it's like having the view of like, well, strength of understanding important is important, but maybe teams are only as strong as their weakest link, and we want to understand what that looks like and how that affects us. So, for example, like that change of the jersey can affect it. So we're just sort of looking at little components, but particularly the spine of, is of really great interest to me, and uh, and then also how environments create skill. So. The best way to describe it is some some clubs are like a black hole for talent. What is it like? Tim Manners had like I don't know 180 different teammates at the Eels, um, whereas you know so whereas other guys at the Storm like it's been much more stable. What does that do to players that once they get there? Because you know the Broncos even said to us like they wanted Smith and Cronk, um, Smith and Slater but didn't get them. Sorry, they didn't necessarily want them. They didn't think they were that amazing. But why did they become who they became? And if Smith had gone to Wests, or if he'd gone to Penrith, would he have become Cameron Smith? That's what really fascinates me at the moment: is what actually creates talent over time, and how is that affected by by structures and by by systems? I mean, honestly, like these conversations open my eyes up to cohesion. I mean, if you had a if you were a manager of a of a business, I think all this would help you greatly as well, right? But I mean, your Twitter is amazing at Ben Darwin. The stuff that I read that you come out with on, you know, the jerseys thing was amazing. It's almost down to the, you know, the, the percentage of cotton in the underwear you know, affects games. That's so detailed. It, do, uh, it does when you're a prop, believe me. On <laughs> oh, thank you. So, so also we've got um, we've got our game line Twitter, um, and and Simon, who's our head of sport, he actually does most of the research. I just kind of bang on about it, and then I sort of get ideas about what we should start to sort of look into. We do we do actually do corporate more than we do sport because we've discovered there's actually no money in sport. Um, you know, yeah. everyone wants everything for free. They tend to want, you know, and so we've, we've got clients, but um, most of our research actually doesn't come out of sport. It comes out of military and HR and, and surgery crews and things like that because we couldn't find any data on this in sport. But I, actually one of the guys who's the analysts for the New South Wales uh, State of Origin team said something to me once and he said, um, when we look at a player playing for his club, how he plays for his club has absolutely nothing to do with how he plays for New South Wales. They may as well be two different people. And that for me kind of, I started thinking, all right, there's something here around, you know, a player performing in one environment and how he does versus how he goes in another team. And, and I think that, you know, if you look at, say, Hodgkinson pre-Knights, post-Knights, he was an entirely different player, never got picked for New South Wales again. But he didn't turn into a bad player overnight, and that some of those ideas are what's really kind of interesting me at the moment. I want you to do a deep dive of the uh, St George representatives in the New South Wales team in the early two thousands because that was the the bane of my existence watching them killing it for New South Wales. Anyway, that that, that that's a story for another day. Um, ben, this has been amazing. We're, we're so thrilled we we finally had you on. So thank you so much for for being with us today. Uh, absolute pleasure, guys, and it's so nice to meet 
celebrities like yourself having listened to your voices <laughs> as I've looked after my kids and done my gardening over the last couple of years and uh, and literally counting down the moments until the, the podcast would come out so I could uh, so I could listen to it. I've really enjoyed it and it's it's great hearing something in a long version and take take its time to really investigate a subject. Uh, and as you guys have done, turn it into war and peace. But it but it, it requires war and peace. And so uh, no, it's been, it's been amazing. War, war and peace was, was just nineteen ninety um, four, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, so you'll be hearing War and Peace Part Two later in the year. But for now, um, I just, just want to uh, thank you again, Ben. This this has been so good to talk to you today. So uh, thanks for joining us. That's a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.